This morning, we are going to be celebrating communion together. And communion is to be continually celebrated in anticipation of the Lord's return. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, it reads, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death. Now these important words, until he comes. Until he comes. So there is the anticipation of the resurrected Lord coming again. The believer is to be, look for, to be looking forward to the Lord's return. However, the scriptures teach us that there will be people who are going to reject the notion of the Lord's return. In recent weeks, we have been considering false teachers and their false doctrine. Today, we learned that false teachers often mock, ridicule, find fault with, or make fun of those who are living in anticipation of the Lord's return. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, it reads, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of his coming, they ask? Why hasn't the Lord kept his promise in returning by now? What has gone wrong? Sometimes even Christians may wonder, why hasn't the Lord returned? What is taking so long? The answer that we find in our text is that nothing has gone wrong. That everything is working out just in accordance with the plan of God. Jesus has good reason or having not yet returned. For the sake of time this morning, we're going to be focusing on 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I invite you to look with me at your Bibles there. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So this morning, our theme is, what are we to understand about the Lord's return? What are we to understand about the Lord's return? And in particular, why hasn't he returned up until this point? Well, first, we're to understand that the Lord is not procrastinating in fulfilling his promise to return. The promise that is being referred to in verse 9 is the promise of the Lord's return. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fill his promise. That promise is spoken of in verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? So the promise that we're talking about is the promise of the Lord's return. The promise of the Lord's coming. And we need to understand that the Lord is not slow, that is, he does not procrastinate in fulfilling his promise. The word slow has a negative connotation, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. 
Slowness, as it's being used here, is to be dilly-dally. It is to be lagging. The Lord is not stalling. The Lord is not dragging his feet. Nor is he negligent or forgetful of his promise. He is not acting untoward in having not yet returned. There is nothing amiss. That's why I said the Lord is not procrastinating. But rather, number two, we must understand that rather than procrastinating, which is a bad thing, the Lord is being patient, which is a good thing. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fill his promises. Some count slowness. And now here's the contrast, but is patient. We should view him not as procrastinating, but we should view him as patient. To be patient is to wait in an unhurried manner. To be patient is to exercise restraint so that an action will take place at the appropriate or proper time. That is, when all is completed. To be impatient is to be hasty, jumping the gun, to do something without the proper care or time required to adequately complete a task. He is not impatient, he is patient. Now we ask the question, who is the Lord's patience benefiting? Who is the Lord's patience benefiting? Notice verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Patient toward you. If you are one who marks your Bible, I'd circle that little phrase, patient toward you. I begin by asking the question, who are the you? Patient toward you. Who are the you? Peter is addressing the people of faith. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The book of of 2 Peter is addressed to the people of God. You look at chapter 3, verse 1, the more immediate context, again, we find out who the you are. 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you. Now notice who they're described as, the beloved. So the you are the beloved. The you are the people of God. The you are the elect. The you are followers of the apostles. Verse 2 of chapter 3. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and our Savior through your apostles. So the apostles are their apostles. They are believers. They are followers of God. The unbelievers and false teachers are not a part of the you. They are the they in the text. Notice verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately 
overlook this fact. So the they are the unbelievers. The they are the false teachers. The they are those who are rejecting the truth about the Lord's question. Uh, excuse me, the Lord's coming. So the you is very important. The next question is, what is the Lord waiting for? What is the Lord waiting for in having not yet returned? Answer, he is waiting for all the elect to repent and thus be saved from God's wrath and judgment. Notice verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The any are any of you, and the all are the all of you, the people of God. We are told that God's patience results in salvation. Look at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The Lord's patience is bringing about the salvation of people. The Lord's patience is bringing about the salvation of people. Judgment is going to accompany the Lord's return. Verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So when the Lord returns, there's going to be judgment upon the ungodly. And the ungodly are going to be lost. For the judgment is one of destruction of the ungodly, verse 7. So God is patient, not willing that any elect would experience his judgment. Verse 9, but is patient toward you that all should reach repentance. Thirdly, we need to understand the Lord is waiting for the last elect person person to be saved, and then he will return. We need to understand a very important principle of God's judgment, and that is that God waits in bringing judgment until the last elect person is delivered. And to verse 9, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Now verse 9 is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. It is also probably the most abused verse in the Bible, being taken completely out of context so often. For oftentimes, this verse is taken out of context and quoted only partially. That is, God is not willing that any should perish. They don't talk about the you, but they just simply quote the segment of the verse they want to use, God is not willing that any should perish, as a proof text that God wants every single person to be saved. In fact, so often this is used as fodder for proof against the doctrine of election. 
Election can't be true because God doesn't want anyone to perish is how the verse is often used. But that actually is turning the verse on its head. It's actually making the verse say opposite of what it really does say. And we need to understand that this morning. It's talking about the elect. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, a number of ways. First, we know that logically. We know that logically. For verse 9 is giving us the answer to the question, why hasn't the Lord returned? The answer is that he's being patient toward you, not willing that any should perish. If that's talking about every single human being, if that's talking about how God doesn't want anyone at all to be lost or condemned, then he will never return. Then he's not coming back. If the reason he's not coming is he doesn't want anybody to perish, when he comes, it tells us people are going to be destroyed in the text, verse 7. So, he's not coming back. Furthermore, every day that goes by that the Lord doesn't return, matters to just get worse and worse. Or every day, children are being born. Every day, the population increases. Every day, there are more and more people on the face of this earth who are lost. And so, the longer that he does not come, the worse it gets. If the reason he hasn't come is that he's not willing that any single person on the face of the earth is lost. So, it doesn't work logically. But far more importantly, it doesn't fit the argument of the text at all. The context of Scripture itself teaches us that God's unwillingness for any to perish refers to the elect and not to the whole human race. In the context, God waits and brings judgment against the ungodly until the elect are delivered. Now we have to work our way through this text a little bit. Last week, we saw that there are judgments that have been referred to that are to serve as an example for us, 2 Peter 2.6. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, of what God is going to do to the ungodly when he returns. So we need to see the examples of the judgment that are provided for us. We begin by looking at the example of the flood in Noah's day. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And I know we're jumping all over the place, but 2 Peter 2, 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, which he brought upon the flood of the ungodly. All right. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about what was brought up in 1 Peter 
and now what's brought up in 2 Peter, and it links 1 Peter and 2 Peter together. Now that's important. Because now let's go back to 1 Peter. Let's go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. 1 Peter 3, 20. Because they formerly did not obey, referring to the people alive in the time of Noah, because they did not obey when God's patience waited. Okay? Now we're back to this idea of God's patience waiting. Circle it. You might want to put in your, in your margin 2 Peter 3.9. It's the exact same word. It's the exact same Greek word. God was patient in the time of Noah. So let's learn about God's patience in the time of Noah. God was patient for he waited for the ark to be built. Look at verse 20. I'm in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, and now we find out what he waited for while the ark was being prepared. Okay, so God announced that there was going to be a flood, but that flood didn't come immediately. Rather, he waited to send the flood, and it tells us why he waited to send the flood. He waited for the ark to be built. Not only that, it tells us why he waited for the ark to be built. He did not jump the gun in setting the flood too early. Instead of immediately sending the flood, he waited patiently for the ark to be completed. Now here's why. God was patient even though he was waiting for just a few. Verse 20. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few? How many are a few? Well, we find out it's eight persons, verse 20. Eight persons. It turns out that God was waiting for eight people out of the millions that were alive at that time. He's waiting for eight people. And the reason he is waiting for eight people, tells us the end of verse 20, were brought safely through the water. He's waiting for those eight people to be saved, to be delivered. That when the flood would come, they wouldn't be lost. This example of God's waiting in judgment for the very last person to be delivered who is a part of his people is consistent with 2 Peter 3.9. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Every single elect chosen person. He is not willing that a single one of them would perish. The next example is that of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now we're going back to 2 Peter. So back to 2 Peter. Chapter 2. And we find out that God waited patiently in bringing judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah while he waited for Lot and his family to be delivered. Look at verse 6, 2 Peter 2, 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them, referring to all the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. So Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of all the people, all the inhabitants of the city, is an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly when the Lord returns. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then he knows how to preserve the righteous and hold, and I didn't write the verse down, but the ungodly for punishment. In rescuing Lot from the judgment that was to come upon Sodom and Gomorrah, God exercised incredible patience. You don't need to turn there, but you can if you want, because I'm going to work through the Sodom and Gomorrah account. Emphasizing the patience of God in dealing with Lot. Lot is told to leave the city because God is going to destroy it. I pick up the account in Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. Okay, they're saying, Lot! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. God is going to destroy this city. Lot, get your wife and get out of here. God was patient with Lot. Because Lot dilly-dallied and failed to leave the city. Verse 16 says, but he lingered. But he lingered. He was dragging his feet. He didn't want to go. Even though he was told that the city was going to be destroyed. So God, being extremely patient with Lot, had the angels literally grab the hands of Lot and his family to lead them out of the city. Verse 16. But he lingered, so the men that is the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Now picture that. He doesn't want to go. Lot, you need to get out of here. If you don't leave, you're going to be destroyed with all the others in this city. So he grabs the hand of Lot in order to motivate him to get out of there. Now, if you think that's something, the text says, his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being pitiful. The Lord being gracious. 
the word being patience. And so Lot is brought out of the city, verse 16. They brought him out. And now this, to me, is really, really amazing. For it tells us at the end of verse 16 of Genesis 19, and sent him outside the city. Sent him outside of the city. There are 65 different Hebrew words translated in English as the word set. And the word set means to place a thing down. So we find out that somewhere along the line, the angels actually picked Lot up because he's moving so slowly and because he doesn't want to get out. They actually pick him up, carry him out of the city, and put him down. Then the text says, verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom, Gomorrah, sulfur, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Once Lot and his family are safely out of the city, then the city is destroyed. This is an example of what is taught in 2 Peter 3.9. He is not willing that any of his people would be lost. He waits patiently. He waited for the ark to be built. He waited for Lot to be out of the city. He's not waiting for everybody. He's waiting for his people. The rest are destroyed, which is in keeping with what 2 Peter 3, 7 says, the ungodly are destroyed. In the larger context, as God was unwilling that the elect should be destroyed, God, in fact, did bring judgment against the rest. So what is the example that is referred to in 2 Peter 2.6? The example is that God is not willing for a single elect person to be lost. God withholds his judgment until that last individual, that last person that is ordained for deliverance is in fact delivered. It's not until the ark is built and Noah and his family are safely in that ark until the flood comes. It's not until Lot is out of the city until judgment comes upon the city. It is not until the last elect child of God comes to faith that he then comes and brings judgment upon this earth. That is what Jesus is waiting for. That last person to be saved. Jesus said in John chapter 6, starting at verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. That I would not lose one person. 
that the Father has entrusted to my care. But we'll raise it up at the last day. Therefore, in our text, the reason that the Lord has not yet returned is because he is waiting for the last elect person to be saved. And then he will return, bringing judgment upon all the rest. There is a last, just as there was in the days of Noah. Noah and his family. There was the last, just as there was in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, when it was Lot and his family. And there will be a day future when there is a last one that is to be saved. And when he is, the Lord is coming. So now we move to the celebration of communion. And what does this have to do with communion? Well, Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is a tremendous unity in the death, the resurrection, and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these events have a common denominator. That is the salvation of a lost people. We are proclaiming this morning that every single person that shares in the benefits of Christ's death bears and shares in the benefits of Christ's resurrection and shares in benefits in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as he will deliver them and reign over them. That is the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He saves his people. He saves his people. And as we partake of communion this morning, and we say, this is my blood which is shed for you, and you individually are partaking of that cup, thank God for his patience and waiting for you. Aren't you glad that he didn't come before you were saved? You recognize how God has been good to you? You want him to come before your children are saved? Your grandchildren? Look around you. Who do you want to be lost? It's a good thing that Jesus is patient. But there will be a day. He will return when that last person has placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming again. And he will reign over his people and he will bring destruction to those who have failed to submit to his authority, who has mocked his return, who has not believed in his death and resurrection. 
they will, in fact, be lost. But God is not willing that any of you, his people, would perish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the mercy and grace of God. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who has exercised great patience in waiting for his people to be delivered. Lord, help us to be a people of faith that do not mock or ridicule or find fault or and somehow think that Jesus is being negligent, forgetful, or irresponsible in having not yet returned, but to recognize it's not slowness, it's patience. Patience because he's not willing that any single individual who belongs to him would be lost. Just as you waited in the time of Noah for the ark to be built, just as you waited for a reluctant lot to leave the city, Lord, just as you are waiting for that last individual to come to faith, Lord, we thank you for your waiting. And we thank you for your coming. And we look forward to and anticipate the ultimate and final and great deliverance that is going to come when indeed you do return to this earth to complete your will of saving your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time we're going to take communion and ask the brethren to come forward. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we ask that you do not refrain, that you refrain not because of any rule that we have, but because of what the Word of God teaches about communion, that it's a, a statement, a profession of faith, of uh, a symbolic act of your placing your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. But I would also say that you can become a child of God in just a moment. If, if you are willing to bow your head and, and just simply acknowledge your sin, believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died so that your sin can be forgiven and that, that you can become his child and have that opportunity and privilege of worshiping and serving him, then you can be saved. But if you reject that gospel, it's not good news. It's destruction. May the Lord speak to all of our hearts. May he bring us to himself. Other instance, if you'd come forward, please.